Good evening. Welcome. I know it's sometimes strange to be in here for the pre-concerts, but uh, here we are, and we got a chance to see the, the great exhibit um, out at BP Hall. Uh, my name is Brian Lawrenson uh, from KUSC uh, and other places, and it's uh, really wonderful to be here with you this evening. Um, I'm joined by the, the co-curators of this evening's program, Inti Figus Vizueta and Jay Campbell. Um, Inti, I usually don't like read directly from bios, but you say it so much better than I ever could. So uh, Inti writes magically real musics through the lens of personal identities, braiding a childhood of overlapping immigrant communities and black-founded freedom schools in Chocolate City, Washington, D.C., with direct Andean and Irish heritage and a deep connection to the land. Her musical practice is physical and visceral, attempting to reconcile historical aesthetics and experimental practices with trans and indigenous futures. That's beautifully said, first of all. Um, she has uh, commissions this season from the LA Phil, which you'll hear tonight, uh, the Kronos Quartet, the Ataka Quartet, Jack Quartet, and uh, Crash Ensemble, <laughs> uh, as well as Jennifer Coe, Matt Heimovitz, Andrew Yee, and yes, Jay Campbell. Uh, speaking of Jay Campbell, uh, this is Jay, cellist, uh, the, only, the only musician to ever receive two Avery Fisher career grants, one as a soloist in 2016, and one as a member of the Jack Quartet a few years later. If you win three, you can turn it in for a Grammy. That's what I Ooh. <laughs> Let's, let's get it. Or an Oscar, maybe, I don't know. Either way, you know, good, a good statue. Yeah, <laughs> tis the season, too. <laughs> uh, Jay is a frequent collaborator with folks like Patricia Kopachinskaya. He's worked with uh, some of the titans of 20th and 21st century music, like the late Pierre Boulez and Elliot Carter. Uh, and with the great composers of our day, uh, Catherine Lamb, John Luther Adams, Marcos Balter, Taishan Sori, many, many others. His uh, deep collaborations with John Zorn uh, have resulted in more than a dozen works uh, written for him. And uh, you'll be premiering two new works tonight. So, first question, did I get any of that wrong for either of you? I, that, that lines up with my experience. <laughs> Good. Yeah, my memory. Excellent. All right, so we'll start with the hard questions, um, and you both get this one. Um, what is your favorite thing about working with one another, and, uh, and what is your favorite thing about each other's artistry? Uh, my, my favorite thing about Inti is that uh, the, the process of curation, I feel like, is not so different than uh, the process of composition or uh, even just learning a new piece uh, when it's done in a way that is interesting to me. And I think that way that I'm referring to um, is the way that kind of embraces uh, uncertainty and unknown kind of margins, uh, kind of rejecting the idea of staying within uh, like a margin of safety. Uh, that's where I start to lose interest in uh, the music that I play. The second that I start to go autopilot or I'm not scared a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm less kind of invigorated to, to get out on stage and try to, try to do it. There's the kind of uh, the fear factor that, that I like, and I think that is very generative for really interesting kinds of music that are unfamiliar and like fundamentally new. Well said. Um, 
Yeah, I'll say, um, you know, in, in two parts, uh, curating with Jay is an absolute pleasure. Um, I think that, you know, <laughs> contemporary music has a lot of different little pockets, um, but I feel like Jay and I really connect uh, along lines of interest, along uh, just ways of, of, of listening and, and, and finding a really kind of um, beautiful and fragile and really fleeting uh, moments in pieces that, that kind of em embrace, you know, that, that uncertainty that, that you talk about. Um, as a composer, I'll, I'll say that uh, writing for Jay is an absolute pleasure because um, as, as much as uncertainty and uh, anxiety is often part of uh, me sitting in the audience and hearing someone uh, really explore some of these open things that I, I put, um, I, you know, hearing Jay is just always, <laughs> like, I'm always just like, oh my god, what are you going to do next? Um, and that's that's a real joy uh, that can kind of like just make me you know want a piece to keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. Um, but knowing that I'll end it, yeah, it's, it's good. Um, so tonight's program was to begin with a tribute to uh, the late Bill Kraft, who we lost recently. Logist logistically, it's actually not going to work tonight, but they are going to do the tribute at the next Green Umbrella. This was. Um, a fellow associated with the LA Phil for 25 years and the creator of Green Umbrella, uh, along with Ernest Fleischman. So um, there will be a William Kraft tribute, um, but it is being postponed just for sort of choreographic and, and logistical reasons this evening. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but I did want to ask you um, did either of you ever interface with Bill Kraft um, in any capacity or, or have any experience working with him? I had I had worked with some of the um, contraptions that he came up. Like there's this kind of like weird timpani setup that I, I played a piece with once, and I think he was the first person to write for it, as far as I understand. But uh, yeah, I have a huge amount of respect for what he did. I think he kind of represents something really cool about Los Angeles, is um, kind of that uh, earlier in the century the time of. Just the relationship with new music in LA is, is a really deep one. I think a lot of people, especially when you ask Europeans you think about LA, like new music doesn't come to mind, but it's a really, there, there's really quite a history with like Monday evening concerts across the street, the history with Schoenberg and Stravinsky, um, and all the interesting ways that they overlapped with the, the film music industry and uh, Hollywood. And, yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, and, and also I, I didn't have the pleasure um, before actually starting to know him after he passed, um, and actually feeling that way about a lot of the kind of composers who have passed in the last couple of years, which has been a lot of the greats of the 20th century. Um, I will say that I, I heard that our conductor tonight, uh, Bimbai Kaziboni, actually had uh, kind of a, a mentor-mentee relationship with uh, Bill Kraft, um, but I can't speak any more to that. But I will say that some of these connections are definitely uh, in the concert. So when the LA Phil calls um, and, and says, we'd like for the two of you to put together a Green Umbrella concert, um, how much is carte blanche? How much did they say, okay, we'd also like to commission you to write a piece for the concert. We'd like for this element to be on it. Like, what was the, what was the process like starting from uh, the ask, as they say, and getting to where we are this evening? Either one of you can take that. Yeah, I got a very nice email, um, and uh, I don't get that many really nice emails, and that one was really nice. Um, and I think the you know uh, 
uh, really opening with the idea of um, creating a program in, into which a, a new piece can land is, is so rare and so um, actually really inspiring uh, for, for what I, I can kind of do. And then also um, just the uh, get, getting rid of a little bit of the anxiety, uh, knowing that uh, I mean, it's a really you know, a joint endeavor with Jay. It's really sweet, and then I think in terms of programming, um, you know, Jay and I really went back and forth about you know what direction we wanted the concert to go in. I think uh, early on we, were, we we kind of thought about the idea of kind of a New York visits <laughs> Los Angeles a little bit, and uh, what it would be like to bring uh, some of the repertoire that you know Jay is really kind of entrenched in, and some of the Zorn and some of our kind of uh, close community and collaborators. Um, but then, yeah, eventually kind of settling in on uh, just pieces that we felt like were really beautiful and that we would love to hear, um, and we would love to hear together, um, just as a, as a kind of driving um, and organizing force a little bit. Yeah, I, I got a phone call from Christine, who's curating here now. She, uh, she, was, she used to be at SF Performances and really kind of, um, I think, transformed that series in a really interesting direction, so I was really happy to see her move, move here. Um, I, you know, once you accept it and you make sure that they're not also like asking for your social security number <laughs> and like your mother's maiden name, you're like, oh, is this really the LA Phil? <laughs> um, then, then it was a, a, a process of just discussing with NT the kind of music we liked um, to, to really have it be a collaborative effort. Um, I think if either of us uh, commissioned, uh, sorry, uh, curated this program totally by ourselves, it would, it would be a different program. Um, so there's the uniqueness of uh, those discussions that have come up here, and just a, a reflection of kind of the music that we've been interested in lately. Uh, for me, I've been really interested in where where uh, fully notated music overlaps with fully improvised music. I think it's very much in the air right now. Um, it certainly is very it's something that's that's really thought about and discussed a lot um, in my musical community, uh, where certain things break down and certain things really shine. I really wanted to kind of take that risk and commission composers who, who play with that. Uh, Wadada Leo Smith is just a living legend who has not gotten nearly enough um, recognition in the classical music sphere uh, than he, that he deserves. He deserves every single award twice, including <laughs> the Avery Fisher Grimes and the Grammy and an Oscar. Uh, so, you know, everything, once I, I got it, was just as unfamiliar as I, and, and kind of unexpected as, as I expected. Uh, and that was really kind of a, a treat. That's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to get a score, and I had no idea how to play it. And here we are, and I think you'll hear it. I think it'll be, there'll be a lot of moments that are very confusing, and uh, more importantly than it being uh, a really clear experience, I'm hoping that a lot of these these pieces will kind of leave you thinking about them later, even confused and making, you know, thinking about some questions that these pieces pose. For me, that's more important than someone immediately liking it off, off the bat. What do you do, though, when you get a score that you don't quite know what to do with or, or how to read it? I imagine it's a quick phone call to the composer to sort of sort things out, but what, what is that moment like for you when, when you, you open up the score and you're like, don't know what they want here. Yeah, usually the first thing I do is call the composer. We have a discussion, and I, I lightly berate them before uh, kind of caving and be like, all right, fine, I'll do what you want. Um, 
but then in the, in the process of exploration, I think uh, like exploring this more, learning the piece, something that I've personally experienced a lot as a as a performer of all kinds of music. I play a lot of old music as well. Uh, I feel less frustrated by the challenges thrown at me by a living composer than I do in the challenges thrown at me in, you know, by Dvorak. As much as I love Dvorak, there are certain things I can't call them up and, and be like, hey, can I, can I just drop that double stop? Like, it doesn't really work for my hands. But I can with living composers, and that's part of the, the really nice part about it. You can call them up, you can get their vibe as a person. Um, you actually have a human connection, and I think that's something that sometimes get, gets lost in classical music, that, um, you know, we have this abstract, like, symbol of, of musical ideas and expression, and even more simply, like, kind of just a state of their soul at that time. And to expect all of that detail and nuance to be transmitted through a few dots on the page is ridiculous. Um, there's, there's ambiguity there, and my confidence in playing music is reinforced by even just knowing certain little details of, of the composer. How do they talk? How do they, you know, hmm. how, how do they discuss things with me? How do they listen? Uh, what's their energy? Hmm. That's interesting. And Inti, are you a, a, a dots and lines person, or do you find that too constraining? Do you, do you go beyond the, the traditional when you write out a score? Uh, de definitely beyond the traditional. Um, you know, I, I think for me, the process of composition is about the kind of moment of meeting with an ensemble or a soloist, or in the case of tonight, uh, both. Um, you know, I, I think for me, I, I really try and create music that kind of has to uh, have people put something of themselves in it. Um, and sometimes that means really open notation, sometimes that means really specific notation, but um, you know, one, act, one core aspect is a given, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they know uh, what kind of energy they're going from and what kind of expressive space they're going to, but they don't know the pitch, or, you know, they don't know what rhythm, but they have all of the melody already there, so there's this kind of active form of shaping that I kind of um, really, you know, kind of encourage and ask, and, and, and part of that, too, is, is a kind of desire for proximity uh, and, and closeness. Uh, with performers, because I, I love performers, um, and just the the idea of being able to create something that that someone else is going to decode lets me kind of put all of the care that uh, and care and ideas that I, I kind of have at the moment of writing, and then have uh, have the player you know, approach it in, in the moment that they see it, um, and have both of those kinds of immediate and. I don't know what it's like, <laughs> like specialness of, of that moment to kind of define how uh, the music is going to grow or not grow or, you know, you know any, any of those things. And so, um, you know, I think sh shaping that for each different ensemble or, or each different situation um, is where I derive my joy of composing because I think that if I was just trying to put dots and lines on a page, I would just be like, are these dots and lines good enough? It's like, well, you know, I, I, I don't know if a player is going to feel comfortable telling me that they aren't good enough, but they will tell me if, you know, a kind of space that I've made isn't, you know, isn't kind of uh, inspiring them in the way that they need to um, in order to really kind of fully play a piece. Um, yeah. I'm hearing from both of you this sort of joy of collaboration in the way that, that you approach music making. Um, so often we think about, especially with 
living composers that they come into town and they work, especially in the orchestra world, they, they work with an orchestra and they sit about midway up in the hall during rehearsal and then they talk to the conductor at the break and tell them what things were wrong and how to perform something correctly. And I'm hearing from both of you that there may not necessarily be such a thing as right and wrong or correct or incorrect in certain elements, at least, of, of the way that you write and of the way that you work as an interpreter. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's appropriate um, in, in a lot of music sometimes. Like, I think that model works depending on the kind of music you're making. Um, and so I think it's really just about applying the right method to the task at hand. Um, that doesn't really work for the, the music on this program, but uh, it's, it'll work, it could work for someone else. Um, so I think it's about flexibility and kind of knowing the situation that you're going into, because that's a part of the collaborative process, right? If you go in and you haven't done your research about the people that you're working with, then, then it's not a collaboration. So it's, it's really about knowing how to interface with, uh, with the room, with the people, and, and how to make everyone feel comfortable uh, and kind of feel empowered to, to play com comfortably and confidently and expressively. And in tune. <laughs> Sometimes in tune, not, not always in tune. And not always. There's no such thing as in tune. I'm learning that as I get older. Uh, well, let's dive into the music um, and I guess just kind of go concert order, if you don't mind, um, beginning with Lisa Lim's An Ocean Beyond Earth. Uh, this is, uh, she's an Australian-born composer, um, and this is a piece about the discovery of an ocean underneath the sort of icy surface on one of Saturn's moons, and this is a piece for solo cello, except ish. There's a violin there, I see, and there are some uh, threads or strings attaching the cello to the violin. Uh, what's going on? You're giving away the magic trick. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this, this piece is uh, kind of a, like a, it's like a duo for a soloist, I guess, uh, is how I think of it. It's, there, there's very much a dialogue that in the, like in the truest sense of chamber music, I think, uh, is a very like poetic image for describing the relationship, like the collaborative relationship there. Um, and that's basically that the, it's no longer a cello, it's no longer a person playing a cello, but it's like a cello violin person. Like if we kind of morph into this hybrid centaur of like strings and threads of various materials, um, something that I think is really beautiful is kind of the, the gradations of materials that are resonating um, in this new hybrid instrument. It's tied to the microphone stand with rope, and that doesn't—that's not an oscillating body, but the, the but the ropes or the threads that are tied to the strings of both instruments on either end do oscillate, but they oscillate very differently than the strings that they're pulling on. So there's this whole spectrum of the idea of even like a string. What is it, what can a string be used for? Um, how could it how could it re represent all these different things? You have this kind of like quasi bondage thing happening with the violin, but then also you have the the strings on my cello, which are much higher tension, much more kind of like a potential for violence. I mean, the amount of like pressure per square inch on a cello is like incredible. There's 
there's no reason I can figure out why my cello just doesn't implode at any given moment, but it creates like beautiful pure sonorities too. So there's something really interesting about that. Um, I'm also really kind of taken with the distance between the two um, the two instruments. I think very uh, like very much alluding to the distance between ourselves and this dis and this idea of an ocean that's on this planet that we you know is there we can't touch it we can't really know it like in a fundamental way but like we we do know it's there um and just more broadly nothing that's explicitly uh, referenced in this piece too but i think she was really thinking a lot about the state of um, ecology and environmentalism in this present moment and i think she felt like a deep alienation and sadness for the idea of that we have we have the ability and the control and the power to, you know, not create things like the Pacific garbage patch, just things like that. We, we don't have to just destroy our ecosystems if we choose to. And we don't have the option of going to the oceans of Saturn. Like we have one body of water on this planet we can't quite uh, take care of. We haven't quite figured out how to take care of it. So we have this distant kind of un unreachable body of um, something that's very pristine um, and kind of idyllic and something that we are pining for but can't quite reach. And I think there's a theatrical element almost of me reaching towards the violin and kind of pulling it, not quite being able to reach it, but still dialoguing with it. So you're, you're sitting where the chair is now in proximity to the violin in this piece. And was yeah. I not supposed to say <laughs> about this? <laughs> Don't tell. If it's a secret, um, but yeah, what a, what a really um, thoughtful underpinning to this piece, and, and what a great way to open. Um, another Australian is Thomas Metacroft. This is Walkman Antiquarian. Um, I don't, I don't know um, if, if you had a chance to, to pre-listen to any of the music that uh, that is out there, but I I listened to this piece, um, and it's so beautiful. And as soon as it was done, I was like, no, 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 that was not long enough. Uh, and I just went back, repeat, and, and started again. So it's about 20 minutes. Um, and like, for me, it could have been twice that. Like, I, I wish it was. Yeah. It's so gorgeous. Yes. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. I, like, I listen to it like, every night, basically. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly listenable music. And that's not uh, insulting it either. So describe what happens in this piece, because this is the one that, that is going to use sort of the circular setup with two, I guess it's two percussion players, and then one electronics player, and then a pianist, right? There's a synthesizer, there's like a MIDI uh, pad, there's, there's a lot of electronics involved, but um, Thomas is a composer who I think really interestingly uh, works with the idea of uh, nostalgia. Um, I, I haven't really quite heard any composer engage with the idea of, of nostalgia quite as like expertly since maybe Brahms. <laughs> like there's it's 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 so underpinning his music in such a such a beautiful way. And there are these little blips of familiarity, like this sounds that you hear aren't sounds that are just the sound within a piece. They're sounds that should be triggering uh, like cultural memories between us. We'll hear the sound of a, a revolving record player. You know, there's the familiar crackle 
and buzz to it that kind of coats it in this, this aura of, of, of another age. And I think it, it puts the ears there in such a like, magical way, uh, with like, such a sensitivity to our, our, our sensitivity uh, to, to, to timbre and texture. Um, and it really underpins the kind of way that he's uh, playing with, with tonal harmony, uh, very familiar chords, cycles, repeats, uh, things coming back. Uh, over and over again in really interesting and surprising ways. And it's it's got this richness to the texture, but it's not it's not like heavy. It's not um, sweet. I guess it maybe is, is a word that I'm thinking of that, that it's not. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but he, he does this amazing thing with all of these kinds of instruments that you wouldn't think would be instruments. You know, there's a there's a tree branch there that creates a fascinating sound. There's a moment, a couple of moments, I guess, where there are speakers um, that they pour beads into the speaker, some, some sort of, I couldn't tell what the object was, but they pour something into the speaker and then sound, they set it on a drum and sound gets piped through the speaker and the beads sort of start to dance, cascade out of the speaker and onto the drum and it's this, it's just this arresting, alluring sound and watching it happen is, is just one of the most fascinating things because you're like, wait, that sounds like that? And it's just so cool. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, he, th there's, another, there's another piece that I really like. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's like something lullaby, but it's dealing with a similar uh, idea of, of kind of a confusion of what our relationships with objects are. Um, and again, kind of related to, to Lisa, I think it's, it is uh, kind of a commentary on our use of like disposable objects and how we, we we kind of accumulate all these things, develop relationships with them, and then just throw them out. We just let them uh, let them float out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And so he has this piece where it's all these cassette tapes and magnetic tape, and it's two percussionists uh, percussionists that are making these like incredibly beautiful sounds by kind of pulling it through a tape machine um, that they're holding on either end. Uh, and the idea of this piece is that you were kind of one by one moving through the, uh, the, the percussion setup, kind of putting these objects to sleep. And it's, it's very sweet. Like, it, like when I think about certain things like in my life, like my iPad that I play uh, from nowadays, I don't play off-written music. Like my iPad is my lifeline that has all my music and I've probably played like thousands of concerts like staring at this lifeline and I basically sleep with it. You know, and I'm not like shilling for for Steve Jobs or anything like that. But regardless of, of who made it or, or whatever, like that's a like a deeply uh, like I'm deeply attached to to that iPad. I'll be very sad when I when I have to move on. You get those uh, your screen time increased by 900 percent this week. Like, I think I'm up to like 23 and a half hours. Oh my god, at this point. <laughs> that's great. Um, after intermission, it's. The aforementioned Guadalajara Smith, who I totally agree um, is just uh, a national treasure, international treasure. Um, his music is is so incredible, um, and this is a, a new piece, Gondwana, referring to uh, an ancient landmass, a supercontinent, sort of anchored, as I understand it, at the South Pole, um, where Antarctica and South America and Africa are all one landmass, and that's that's. Gondwana. Um, this is and this is getting us into our second half, which is music about land. Um, take us into this piece by Woodard Smith. 
Yeah, it's part of a it's part of a long, longer cycle of pieces that he's been writing for the past twenty years. Um, kind of exactly about what you're talking about our relationship with land. And uh, he had this idea of having multiple ensembles um, instead of one orchestra and soloist. It's three ensembles kind of playing in their own way, and the soloist as kind of being the uh, the focal point of how they revolve and. He's crafted a fairly explicit narrative. Like, I don't want to tell you how to listen to it, and I assure you there will be many moments that are like pretty confusing and, <laughs> and alienating <laughs> sonically. But, um, you know, basically, I think it's, it starts, um, this is like story time. <laughs> so it starts, it's the whole landmass is unified, um, and the ensemble is playing together, the interaction of the ensemble is together. The notation is very unspecific in a lot of ways, so uh, rhythmic activity is kind of a big question mark a lot of times, but it starts very together. Fissures start to appear. Things start moving. There's a big impact moment where the continents are colliding, new continents are formed, life emerges, things evolve, humans emerge, more animals evolve. And then there's like real conflict that happens too. It's like humans develop agency. And I think in the music you can kind of hear, you can hear the music doing this. And he has this like really interesting way of doing it too because it's uh, very, it's very confusing to know exactly where you are in the piece. So he, I, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but he has these incredibly complex ways of writing repeats. And within the repeats there can be and within those repeats, there can be repeats. And then he writes um, how many times to do each repeat. So there's all these like nested, like fractal-like repeat structures over which you can you can improvise if you feel so inspired to. And um, so so that's kind of just like the boring structure of the piece. But um, I think just like philosophically, Wadada is so concerned. I think about the like the spiritual aspect of, of life. He's, his musical practice is informed by it. even the way he notates is, is, is informed by it, the symbols that he uh, chooses to use, um, and the way that he speaks about creativity um, is, a, is a very deeply spiritual one. And I think for him, a piece like this is kind of a, a, a way of thinking about how humanity emerges from this geologic um, moment that you, you'll hear in the piece about halfway through um, this very cataclysmic thing. So. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit, um, not, not a little bit, it's like extremely uh, different than any other music that I've ever, ever played. Um, he's, uh, his work is completely singular. There's no one who, who thinks about music like him, and there's no one who creates scores that look like him. And that, by extension, makes every player on, in, uh, on stage play and relate to a score in a way that they've never done before. And that's interesting to me, even if it's kind of confusing and often frustrating. The process of going through that fundamentally changes how you approach your own instrument and your sound. And I really like that. That's really exciting. And that's a beautiful way into your piece, which is, this is a premiere in this form this evening of Talam. Is that the pronunciation is correct? Talam. Talam. Uh, and this is an old Irish word, um, and this harkens back to part of your cultural roots. Yeah, so um, both of the pieces tonight are kind of engaging with uh, cultural roots. So being uh, born in Ireland and, and half Irish and also being half Ecuadorian and Andean, 
Um, and so Talib uh, relates to um, the kind of three levels of their cosmology. So Nam Talib Moor, so the sky, the land, and the sea. Um, and in, in writing this piece, I, you know, I kind of was thinking about a little bit of a <laughs> complex relationship with uh, you know, kind of going back home when I was a kid and, and hiking a lot and kind of not always enjoying myself. I think I was a little, uh, I wasn't so happy outside, even though I kind of was. Um, I think it took me a long time to really appreciate it. Um, and now I have all these, you know, I think when I, when I start to think about texture and sound and ways of approaching um, choice and everything, it just makes me think about um, a lot of those memories. And so the, the piece is really about different kinds of uh, landscapes and, and elevations and, and just the, the kind of openness there, which is, is strange. Like the, the mountains are really small, like they, they kind of look like hills, but I think, you know, they kind of look really epic in photos. And so, the, I don't know, just this kind of, uh, kind of formation of, of all of this. And, and the piece itself was um, originally for String Quartet and, and was really about um, opening up options for uh, variation within kind of shared structures. And uh, I think the, the idea of shifting this to string orchestra is, you know, is really interesting to me because it, um, it, you know, the, it, it, it itself has a bit of friction when it comes to how much uh, choice can affect the kind of comfort of everyone on stage and you know, how much we want to really kind of hit beautiful moments together, but also um, you know, I think the music really speaks when, when, when there's kind of inconsistencies in it, when um, things, you know, kind of sputter or, or, or you know, they, they aren't just quite perfect. And, and yeah, there's a moment. Um, sort of midway-ish through where the strings are, are sort of moving in and out of focus with, with the pitch, actually, and, and, you know, not moving in half-step increments, but just very slightly, we talked about what is in tune and out of tune, and, and, and it's, that, like, that, that's what you're talking about, right, is this sort of just very slightly moving out of focus and then back in focus, right? Totally, and, and kind of, you know, I, I guess I think that when everyone shares a direction and shares a piece of music because everyone's playing from the exact same score, that there isn't like a part. Um, that there's a kind of shared exploration and shared comfort to, to push past, you know, what's kind of immediately beautiful or like even what's immediately kind of obvious when it comes to like the technique that um, so many of these players spend lifetimes perfecting. And, um, you know, I think there is a little bit of tension to ask people to, to, to not, <laughs> to, to not, uh, you know, kind of, uh, hit it as perfectly as possible and actually a lot of the expressivity is is how far they can push themselves within um, you know a kind of space that really values um, perfection and then your premiere tonight uh, plays even more with that i, I don't know are, are we saying what what happens in in this piece and also am i pronouncing amaru right you are this is um, the earth serpent yeah and so um amaru is a two-headed serpent and, and um, a kind of mythological creature. And, and so when, when writing the piece, I, I was really thinking about the ways in which um, the animals in Indian cosmology really kind of uh, interact with both the cosmos and you know, water underneath. And so there's this uh, idea of water being regenerated by um, kind of rising into the sky. I think a very kind of, uh, you know, an allusion to the water cycle, um, but I think very much kind of within uh, the idea that in the sky, it, it, 
is given back life and then kind of comes back down and seeps into the earth and is within kind of a, a cycle of, of all of that. And, and I think in writing the piece, I really wanted there to be um, distinct, distinct kind of spaces that we could hear those, those things come out with, like things like sheer texture or sheer technique. Um, and then also kind of having Jay be a, a servant <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, and I think he certainly does that. What's it like to play the piece? Uh, I haven't played it yet, so I don't actually don't know. <laughs> I'm completely honest. The form, the form is is open, and uh, so much of it is is driven by, you know, I, I know the choices that I can make, um, but you know, trying to stay earnest and honest to, I think, the spirit of the score and the kind of the the situation that. NT is trying to uh, to create for all these musicians to have inhabit. Um, it would feel very safe to go on stage with like a like a super clear plan of what exactly I'm going to play at every single moment and how I'm going to get there and stuff like that. But um, I mean, maybe I am more foolish than the average cellist, but I I feel completely comfortable making a fool of myself on stage in front of all of you lovely people who came to the concert. Um, but, you know, I think if you don't reach for those moments where, like, fear can turn into inspiration, then it's like, why, why even reach? Like, I, wanna, I want to reach for something profound, not for, not for like, the box of Cheerios. So, um, whether that happens or not, I don't know, we'll find out at, um, like, nine o'clock. <laughs> I love it. This is a place of possibility, this stage. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great place to do it. I mean, the, the, the audience in Los Angeles is so open-minded, and I think the Philharmonic has also cultivated such a positive culture about taking risks. Um, it's, I mean, you're so lucky to have this orchestra in the city. It's, it's amazing. There's no other orchestra that would, I was talking to Vivaya about this, there's no other orchestra that would take on the risk of programming something like Madonna's piece. Yeah. It's still like the, or the, the musicians would riot. It's I'm serious, I'm completely serious, and, and not only do they do it, they're doing it with a, like a huge grin on their face and doing a really great job in a very little amount of rehearsal time, and you know, it's, it's the real deal, so I take it really seriously. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, that's your program. Uh, some, some I don't knows and some we'll see what happens and uh, a whole lot of uh, just really wonderful music on tap. Uh, Inti Figus Bisueta and Jay Campbell are co-curators and cellists uh, this evening and composer with uh, new music and uh, all sorts of wonderfulness happening this evening. Thank you both uh, for giving us a, a little preview. Thanks. Thank you. Enjoy the